It is Midweek Media Watch, and uh, Hayden Dunnell is with us uh, this uh, this evening. G'day, Hayden. Nice to have you with us again. Kia ora again, Mark. Yeah, indeed. Now, you wanted to start with the big news of the day, which, of course, was the defection of Labour Minister Mika Whaitri to Te Pāti Māori. Uh, a bit of a media kerfuffle with this one. Yeah, for sure. And I'm going to do my best to get the timeline and details right here, but... It was certainly a confusing lead-up uh, to this morning's official announcement that Mika Whaitari was defecting. So from what I can tell, some outlets, including Takaradi, were briefed last night on Whaitari's then impending decision. However, uh, when uh, Harawira, uh, a journalist at Te Ao Māori News, uh, which is part of Fakata Māori, formerly Māori Television, was able to stack up the story independently and published a story at... 8.22pm, and that set off alarm bells all throughout the media, lots of exclamation marks on Twitter, and it left them kind of scrambling in an information vacuum. So Mika Whaitari herself, she wasn't picking up the phone to Pāti Māori, wasn't confirming anything. Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Sepuloni issued a statement saying she'd seen some media reports about uh, one of her ministers defecting but hadn't heard anything from Whaitari herself so a lot of confusion out there. By the morning uh, it was still not really cleared up. Some people had even started to speculate that Te Ao Māori News had got it wrong. Of course they hadn't. Uh, uh, they'd say that maybe Whaitari wasn't defecting. I don't think the Deputy Prime Minister has still heard from Mika Whaitari but it was all it was very confusing wasn't it? And then of course that wasn't the end of it. The day proceeded. The day, the day proceeded in a similarly confusing fashion. So even this morning we had uh, more muddle. Uh, Te Pāti Māori put out what was an embargoed press release, letting people know that an announcement was imminent uh, that had the words at the top of it, not for publication, for planning purposes only, and that was highlighted. However, uh, the party apparently then told News Hub that it was welcome to publish the subject line of the media advisory, which confirmed that Whaitari was set to cross the floor, and News Hub did that. The spin-off then republished News Hub's report to the chagrin of some other media who felt that both organisations were breaking an embargo, a lot of drama there. But it's all, well, it, it's ended well, OK. I mean, the announcement did finally get made. Yeah, it did, it did. So this is Whaitari speaking this morning about her intention to jump ship. The point here, Fano, is Māori political activism as part of being Māori. It comes from our whakapapa. And we as Māori have a responsibility to it. Not others, we. Today I'm acknowledging that whakapapa. I'm acknowledging my responsibility to it and it's calling me home. But that's, that somehow wasn't the end of the confusion. No. So the media moved on from being confused about whether Whaitari was resigning uh, to whether she's still an MP at all. So technically announcing her resignation and intention to defect uh, and sending a signed letter to that effect to the Speaker should trigger a clause in Labour's Waka jumping legislation that automatically vacates her seat. But to Pāti Māori and Whaitari herself, they've been talking like she expects to see out the rest of this term in Parliament. Apparently, uh, they argue that on the basis that she might have sent an email to the Speaker rather than what the legislation expects, which is a signed letter. Well, uh, uh, 
I'm a little bit confused by all this. It really boggled the legal minds of the media, confused a bunch of MPs. Act leader David Seymour probably had the best quip to describe the situation. He apparently described uh, Fighterby in the House as Schrodinger's MP. So uh, on One News, Jessica Much Mackay even seemed to report that Fighterby had sent and then withdrawn a resignation email. I mean, as things stand, though, it looks like Fighterby will get to stay on. It's been confusing. I'm pretty sure that the media reporting it has sounded pretty confused as well. Uh, but she is apparently going to be an independent MP. So, I mean, how would you rate the media coverage and, and reaction to all this? I mean, besides all of that, Aforementioned confusion, confusion, I'd probably describe the reaction as one of almost raw exhilaration. So it really got them going. The thrill of the election year, it was all that drama. Oh, absolutely. Everyone's amped up. They're loving it. And, and look, <laughs> I get it. I get it. It's enthralling. It raises a lot of big questions for the government in the final six months of its second term. Obviously, some of those questions are over whether the walker jumping legislation it passed is worth the paper or pixels that it's uh, written on. It also changes the electoral map. I mean, Faitere is standing in Ikaroa Rafiti and that... Uh, puts that in play for Te Pāti Māori, increases the party's chances of playing Kingmaker, or I think, in Jessica Much Mackay's words, wielding the Kingmaker's sword? I, I don't know. Does the Kingmaker have a sword that they wield? I don't I don't know. There's a lot we'll of these kind of metaphors that go around the political media. I mean, it puts pressure on Christopher Luxon to find a way to possibly work with Te Pāti Māori if he wants National to form a government. Uh, more than that, the people of the Hawke's Bay. They've lost, I think... Uh, two local ministers within a month, mm -hmm. Stuart Nash also departed, so they'll be feeling pretty let down as they're recovering from a major disaster. Having said all that, and I might be, look, I, I preface this by saying I might be way off here. This might be just a me problem, but I do get a little bit bothered by these outpourings of unbridled excitement that we see from parts of the political press in times like this. Now, mm -hmm. it's just, I mean, Politics has an impact on normal people's lives. And sometimes I find just kind of reveling in the drama and just the spectacle of it as if it's just an excitement. I find it a little bit off-putting sometimes, particularly when that reaction isn't matched with analysis of how what's happening is actually going to affect the way that the country is governed or the lives of the people that these politicians are meant to be governing for. So it can feel like, you know, politics is popcorn entertainment rather than something... I mean, this might be uh, what government is in or what politician is in power. It might be the difference between whether someone gets an elective operation that they need or whether they get a good, good education, you know, important stuff. So, I, I, I mean, as I say, I could be way off here. Am I way off here, Mark? Do you ever get annoyed about just the politics of spectacle stuff? Yes, I do. I, I, you do sometimes feel that um, it, it's it's all just part of the game, that it's all based around the beehive and all the media are in yeah. there and all the politicians and all those and play, it's just playing with each other. Palace <laughs> intrigue sort of yes, thing. Yes, And it can get a bit like that when this kind of drama happens and everyone's just amped up yes. for it. <laughs> I can imagine the excitement last night when someone apparently had the story and no one else knew about it. And then imagine the phone calls and the texts going around saying, do you know this? What, what's happening? What's going on? It would have been very exciting. Oh, very exciting. And you can get it, especially these people, I mean, political media, they're absolutely locked up in the beehive day in, day yes, out. Yeah. You can kind of get a bit detached from it. But I mean, uh, it, maybe I'm being a political Scrooge here. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, you just, it's just having to remember that, that there's real people that are 
living underneath the palace intrigue that get impacted by it. And so just keeping a connection to that. Now, maybe it's fine. Maybe I'm being a massive grouch here. Text us your thoughts. Am am I somehow too negative? Impossible. But maybe it's it's true. 2101. And you can uh, have Hayden will be sitting back. He'll be watching those texts fly in. Now, before we move on, you did want to shake that grouch label that you've attached to yourself and (laughs) highlight a a promising, uh, well, a new piece of journalism from Newsroom. Yeah, just something that I was really impressed by. Newsroom put out a short explainer on fixing Auckland's transport issues, and it's really good. So uh, this is just some, well, some, not the first 30 seconds, but it's uh, the first 30 seconds that is presented. And it's just putting the, uh, by a, the person, <laughs> by a journalist, and this is just putting the history of the city and its transport system in context. In the early 1900s, Auckland was a relatively compact city. Without cars, people had to live within a short walk or tram ride to their workplace, shops and other public services. However, as the price of cars plummeted over the 1900s, the middle class started turning to them as a more convenient form of transport. People no longer needed to live within close proximity to important amenities. The introduction of the car drove the fastest period of land area growth that Auckland has ever seen. Now, quite hard to portray a good uh, visual, uh, a a good video in in radio format. Mm. But, uh, I mean, that clicking sound that you heard, that's infographics or historic photos appearing on screen. Mm -hmm. So it's got some really interesting visual uh, aids there to get you through the information. And the video is packed with them. It makes the whole experience of watching it a bit more exciting than you might expect if you're not just a massive transport nerd like admittedly I am. Mm -hmm. So it's on Newsroom and how long is the video? I mean, and does does it get into meaty topics? Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of this is kind of the beauty of it. It's only five minutes long, and it does get into some surprising amount of detail, and that owes something to those infographics. You know, they're a useful way of transmitting a lot of information in a short time period, and also the concise way it's edited. Uh, so here's a snippet, for instance, that goes into the case for congestion charging, a common objection to the idea as well, and a rebuttal to that objection, and this is all within the space of a few seconds to implement a congestion charge. So unfortunately for drivers who don't want to pay more, they really need to pay more. There is resistance to this idea in New Zealand with Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown calling it a distraction until we have proper public transport. This is an almost identical criticism to those who opposed the London congestion charge 20 years ago. But as of 2017, it had raised over £1.7 billion for public transport infrastructure. Now, that first voice you heard is the Auckland University, just for your information, the Auckland University Director of Urban Planning, Tim Welch. So who was the journalist who uh, who gets the credit for this fine work? Yeah, I asked Newsroom that question. Apparently this explainer was fronted by a guy called Hugo Stewart, a video journalist. He mainly works creating content for social media platforms like Instagram for them. And I think this could be his first longer form explainer. And, I mean... If that's the case, that's really impressive. He's apparently also just 23 years old, so he has a lot of explaining still to do, a lot of explaining ahead of him. <laughs> and, of course, it is an established format, um, but not the one that we've really seen done all that much here in New Zealand. Yeah, explainer videos. A mm. lot of media in the States, they're very popular over there. I think the most popular ones are by the American site Vox, and its mission statement is to explain the news, and it has more than... 
11 million subscribers on YouTube. It has a show on Netflix. I think of also YouTubers. There's lots of YouTubers doing explainer-style mm. stuff, like Adam Conover. Uh, he had a show called, I think, Adam Ruins Everything, and he does YouTube explainers. I mean, uh, despite that, we haven't... Th- th- these are really popular uh sort of style of content but we haven't had a sort of video content with a similar mission in New Zealand and that's not to say we don't have good explanatory journalism happening I mean stuff has really been the market leader through its series The Whole Truth that started out devoted to COVID and now has since moved into areas such as whether you should be taping your mouth shut at night Uh, FYI the answer to that is no Uh, don't tape your mouth shut at night Uh, we haven't really had this kind of done though in short-term, short-form video format that I hear, mm. Mark, I hear that short-term, short, short-form video is very popular with the youth of today. Yes. It's through sites like me? The, the TikTok <laughs> well, and the indeed. Instagram Reels. Uh, mm. So, I mean, Newsroom's effort in this area, I think, is noteworthy, not just because it's something we've been missing a little bit, because, but because it's really slick. Yes. It, it's really uh, well put together and it's really interesting. So, as one of the site's editors told me, he thought it was the best integration of video and infographics that he had seen on Newsroom, but I'd expand that out to some of the wider New Zealand media as well, and hopefully we do see more of this type of thing from Hugo Stewart. Mm, Excellent stuff. Well, I mean, everyone with a phone these days can be a video editor, a camera person, a presenter, and they they do. I mean, TikTok, classic example, but they do, and they produce really good stuff. So, you know, the the future is looking very bright for short-form videos. Yeah, the problem is you don't get paid for your TikToks. No, that's true. And, I mean, you say anyone, but but I'm pretty sure you couldn't, Mark. I'm pretty sure I couldn't. I'm not on TikTok. (laughs) I mean, it's a skill. It's a skill. Doing this kind of video is a skill. I couldn't do it. I I don't have the skills. Well, from the good to the questionable now, you wanted to talk about some free PR for Air New Zealand. Yeah, now I don't know if you heard, but yesterday Air New Zealand announced it's going to be commissioning a designer to create new uniforms for the company. And that resulted in stories across most of our major media platforms. The story was even the lead on the homepage of nzherald.co.nz for a while. And these stories were all pretty much glowing. I mean, News Hub's even featured Air New Zealand's customer and sales officer, Leanne Geraghty, being presented with a potential design submission for the new uniforms by a journalist. That's the first thought. That's very interesting. That's a very interesting design. We, uh, yeah, we, we could take these on board, take your input on board. In New Zealand's crossing fingers, the designers across the country don't drop the ball on the design opportunity of a lifetime. Well, you've got to say it's not that unusual, is it, for in New Zealand? They're always pretty good at getting into the media. Absolutely. I mean, this is probably the best company in New Zealand at winning positive publicity for what it's getting up to. I mean, it's in-flight safety videos. They could have almost had a section of their own on our news sites for a while there. I mean, you'd, you'd have national world sport you know, entertainment and Air New Zealand safety videos. Just a couple of weeks ago, I think it even won a huge round of other media coverage for what it called the Great Kiwi Snack Off. That was a competition to decide its new in-flight snacks. So, I mean, compared to Australia, over there, bashing their local airline is almost a national blood sport, right? Mm. We're positively sunny about our carrier. The only bum note that it's ever really struck that I can 
think of is when it introduced its mascot, Rico. Do you remember him? No, I don't, he, thankfully. He, he was a foul-mouthed South American rat who was killed off, Ooh. I think, literally in 2011 <laughs> after he after widespread ridicule. So that was that was they learned something from that. And yeah. and I mean, some of the praise is justified. Air New Zealand does win awards. It's got inter, it's got a good international reputation. But it's still a company, albeit one that's half publicly owned, and few other companies get this amount of uncritical coverage, which basically amounts to free PR. The only one that I could think of that rivaled it was probably KFC when it brought out the Double Down or when everyone went there pre-lockdown for a taste of the Colonel's Chicken before they got stuck in their house for six weeks. I mean... This kind of giving out this kind of free PR, it's uncomfortable at the best of times, but I think it's definitely a bit jarring though right now. Because you can, you know, every radio station in the country, every breakfast show would be talking about it. It just sort of clicks all the buttons. And in a content hungry environment, that's you know, yep. there's so much competition. Everyone's looking for something to talk about. The snack off, and and it's relatable. People really like it, mm. and you and. People are interested in it, and so you can understand it from that perspective. But giving them uncritical coverage right now, I mean, domestic airfares, they've increased 53.7% in the last year. International fares up 16.7%. Inflation's high. It's not that high. People are paying far more to get around the country. And as it raises airfares, Air New Zealand is increasing its profit projections, adjusting its expected earnings up tens of millions of dollars. Now, there's a case that the company is using its dominance in our domestic market to extract maximum revenue from local customers in order to hasten its return to profitability following the lifting of COVID restrictions. So in that context, uh, not exactly that conducive with a sunny story about the snack-off. I mean... (laughs) you know, which design is going to make their new uniforms, these stories could hit a slightly sour note for mm. people that are relying on the service to get around the country and are paying 53% more than they were last year. Perhaps some of our local media outlets need to, I guess, recalibrate their footing to a slightly more balanced one when it comes to Air New Zealand, especially, uh, Air New Zealand, especially right now. I mean, sure, do a story on the uniforms, even the snacks, whatever, but it might be worth raising the airfares at the same time. Yes, for an example, have you ever called them or tried calling them and how long the wait is to get oh, through it's a, your it's call it's for awful. God's sake. It's awful. I remember their media number has 747 in it, though. <laughs> That's right. Which I thought was good. Might be 737 now. Anyway, moving on, uh, you wanted to speak about a couple of inaccuracies. Uh, one was published by the media. The other, Judy, called out by the media. So where will we begin? Uh, let's start with uh, the media inaccuracy. The, so back in April 2022, RNZ published stories saying that the government had delayed ending COVID-19 managed isolation and quarantine, that's MIQ, despite public health advice that it should be wound up immediately. So here's how they introduced that on air. Up to 40,000 people could have skipped MIQ if the government had followed top health advice. A Ministry of Health document shows Dr Caroline McElnay and Dr Ashley Bloomfield advised the government that from November last year, MIQ was no longer justified. That story, which was uh, also echoed in news bulletins, several RNZ shows and in articles, uh, prompted complaints to both the Media Council and the Broadcasting Standards Authority under the standards of accuracy and balance. And those have been upheld. The Media Council has already ruled that RNZ's reports were inaccurate, and this week the Broadcasting Standards Authority matched that with an inaccuracy ruling of its own. So what were its problems with the report? Essentially that they were misleading by omission. So Dr Caroline 
McElnay and Dr. Ashley Bloomfield, they actually hadn't ruled that R or that MIQ should be wound up immediately. And instead, they'd suggested that it should be wound down, but subject to a carefully managed transition. The reports left that detail out. They implied that the government had acted contrary to its experts' advice, essentially keeping MIQ in place for three and a half months when its own officials said it was no longer justified. That just wasn't the case. So the BSA said ensuring accuracy and balance in its reporting of the story was particularly important given the fact uh, the MIQ, I don't know if you remember, it was a controversial topic back then and there was a high level of public interest in whether it was still justified. It said that RNZ hadn't made reasonable efforts to ensure its coverage accurately presented the full picture there. So what penalty did uh, they impose? RNZ uh, has been ordered to broadcast a summary of the BSA's findings and links to the Media Council's findings as well. They can be found at the top of those stories if you look them up now. So did RNZ accept that penalty? Well, it, it didn't. When it got the provisional decision from the BSA, it argued that actually it shouldn't have to broadcast the, deci the decision because it was only found to be in breach of one standard accuracy and not another balance. Uh, so... It said that to broadcast the decision, that was an excessive punishment. It also said that such a penalty was unnecessary as the nation had moved on a long way in the 16 months since its report was aired. And that's undoubtedly true. But the complainant in this case, Hannah Wilberg, responded quite justifiably that much of the delay at arriving at this decision was down to RNZ itself. I mean, not only had it, report, had it fought her complaint every step of the way, it had initially argued that the authority... Uh, did not have the jurisdiction to consider her complaint on the basis that she'd made it through uh, a complaints form for online written content, so not on-air written content. So tried to get her on a legal technicality, basically. Yeah. Well, what do you make of that? Uh, based on the BSA ruling, it may have been better, <laughs> probably <laughs> would have been better for RNZ to just uphold the complaint itself, to take its lumps, basically. Mm. Instead, it argued that the full breadth of its coverage would have informed people that officials weren't saying the MIQ should be immediately wound down when uh, those officials, Caroline McElnay and Ashley Bloomfield, delivered their mem memo in November 2021. Uh, that, that's a pretty tough... That's a pretty tough argument to make. One of its online headlines was, and it's in RNZ's own words, MIQ not justified beyond November, health officials told government last year. So as the BSA notes, the overarching thrust of the story was plainly inaccurate, uh, that headline not accurate, and it gave audiences a misleading impression of the contents of that 2021 mem memo from those two officials. RNZ has only had three complaints upheld under the BSA's accuracy standards in the last five years. So given that, it's uh, strange that it didn't have a better sense of when it would be in breach of them. Now on to the inaccuracy from politicians. National's been copying a bit of heat over how it presented data on nurse numbers. Yeah, that's right. So last week, its health spokesperson Shane Retty put out seemed to be a pretty concerning press release with the headline, 19,000 nurses leave under labour. And it was based on some data he had received from Health Minister Aisha Varel. And it said that data showed labour had failed the health sector and refused to take accountability for inaction. Now, this should have been a bit of an easy hit for National. The health sector is in some kind of crisis. The government's own figures do show that we're still short some 4,000 nurses but Retty managed to get in trouble with the media for basically fudging his numbers. And uh, his 
his leader did as well because he backed Reti up with those numbers. So this is Christopher Luxon being fact-checked by Amelia Wade of NewsHub. It's the government's own number, 19,000 people. We asked how many nurses have left the public health care system. National actually asked the health minister for the number of nurses who'd left employment regardless of whether they were re-employed. The table he got back was this one, showing since 2019, 18,670 nurses have left employment. But there was also a big caveat saying it included those who'd switched nursing jobs but stayed in the industry. So basically, if you kind of didn't catch the problem there, that 19,000 figure includes nurses who had just got another job in nursing. So moving from, say, a GP's office to a hospital, uh, along with some who had just been transferred within organisations within their own organisation. The New Zealand Herald's Claire Trevette pointed out the same thing as Amelia Wade in a story headlined, Aisha Varel accuses National Shane Retty of misleading on nurse exodus. So has National acknowledged that error? Yeah, not really. It initially pointed out that its press release had included a footnote noting that its its numbers included nurses that had been re-employed or transferred. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a bit like RNZ, right, where the headline and the story itself is saying one thing and then you might say that the full breadth of the coverage might might give you uh, the right impression. But Mm. really what you're what anyone reasonably would take away from it is the wrong thing, and that's the clear implication that 19,000 nurses had left the profession. That was the headline on the release. I mean, more recently, I think Christopher Luxon has really just taken to shrugging off questions about the nursing numbers. So here he is on Morning Report. Numbers is one thing, but it's about... It's about it's about being accurate. It's about being upfront with New Zealanders about the real problem and not over-egging it. Corin, I'd just go talk to any nurse in the healthcare system and ask them, do you think we've got a labour shortage or a nurse shortage in New Zealand? And the overwhelming answer is yes, so what are we going to do about it? And we can talk and do kumbaya and lots of chat about numbers, but we can either get uh, answers in place, and that's what this policy is about. Kumbaya about numbers there. Mm -hmm. So that's Luxon on Morning Report. And Corin Dan did a bit of an exasperated sigh after that because he'd been trying to get him to answer the question on the numbers for a few minutes there with no success. But Christopher Luxon does have a point that the crisis in the health system is a bigger issue than the wording of, of his press release, basically, from National, isn't it? Yeah, he does. Uh, but I, he does, and it is the bigger issue. But reporters say their focus on the figures is about trust and credibility. So Amelia Wade at News Hub put it like, puts it like this. Even with an increasing workforce of nurses, Aotearoa still has a crippling shortage which is burning nurses out and impacting on Kiwis' care. But National has sullied good debate about their constructive and sound policy by being misleading. So basically, yeah, the health system, it's a big issue, uh, policy to fix it, big Deal, but uh, it could be a bigger and more long-term problem uh, for the country, for the media, if politicians do feel emboldened to distort data or mislead the media. In the end, it's good to see reporters being sticklers for accuracy here, calling out political spin when they see it in a decisive terms, uh, rather than just uh, putting it as kind of another inaccurate assertion, as a, or putting an inaccurate assertion as another perspective in a debate. Well, we've run out of time, uh, sadly. Uh, we'll do it again next week as well. But you have had some text. Uh, you're dead right, Hayden. Far too much drama and excitement and hyperbole. I'm with Hayden. Would be over the moon if Radio New Zealand were to implement a no-speculation policy to dial down the drama and dial up the constructive journalism. That's Kristen in Auckland. Uh, this segment needs to be renamed Media Wine. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, yeah, that's from a journalist, probably. <laughs> uh, here, here, Hayden. There are a lot of selfish MPs uh, doing a, a know-nothing bunch. And that's uh, from Anne. Okay. Well, constructive feedback there from Anne. I, I appreciate that there's some other grouches out there. <laughs>